Case Two: Ancient Sorceries, Part One, of John Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winterout. John Silence by Algernon Blackwood. Case Two: Ancient Sorceries, Part One. There are, it would appear, certain wholly unremarkable persons with none of the characteristics that invite adventure, who yet once or twice in the course of their smooth lives undergo an experience so strange that the world catches its breath and looks the other way. And it was cases of this kind, perhaps, more than any other, that fell into the widespread net of John Silence, the psychic doctor, and appealing to his deep humanity, to his patience, and to his great qualities of spiritual sympathy, led often to the revelation of problems of the strangest complexity and of the profoundest possible human interest. Matters that seemed almost too curious and fantastic for belief, he loved to trace to their hidden sources. To unravel a tangle in the very soul of things, and to release a suffering human soul in the process, was with him a veritable passion. And the knots he untied were, indeed, after passing strange. The world, of course, asks for some plausible basis to which it can attach credence, something it can at least pretend to explain. The adventurous type it can understand. Such people carry about with them an adequate explanation of their exciting lives, and their characters obviously drive them into circumstances which produce the adventures. It expects nothing else from them and is satisfied. But dull, ordinary folk have no right to out-of-the-way experiences, and the world, having been led to expect otherwise, is disappointed with them, not to say shocked. Its complacent judgment has been rudely disturbed. Such a thing happened to that man, it cries. A commonplace person like that, it is too absurd. There must be something wrong. Yet there could be no question that something did actually happen to little Arthur Vezin, something of the curious nature he described to Dr. Silence. Outwardly or inwardly, it happened beyond a doubt, and in spite of the jeers of his few friends who heard the tale, and observed wisely that such a thing might perhaps have come to Izard, that crack-brained Izard, or to that odd fish Minsky, but it could never have happened to commonplace little Vezin, who was foreordained to live and die according to scale. But whatever his method of death was, Vezin certainly did not live according to scale so far as this particular event in this otherwise uneventful life was concerned. And to hear him recount it, and watch his pale, delicate features change, and hear his voice grow softer and more hushed, as he proceeded, was to know that the conviction that his halting words perhaps failed sometimes to convey. He lived the thing over again each time he told it. His whole personality became muffled in the recital. It subdued him more than ever, so that the tale became a lengthy apology for an excuse that he deprecated. He appeared to excuse himself and ask your pardon for having dared to take part in so fantastic an episode. For little Vezin was a timid, gentle, sensitive soul, rarely able to assert himself, tender to man and beast, and almost constitutionally unable to say no, or to claim many things that should rightly have been his. His whole scheme of life seemed utterly remote from anything more exciting than missing a train or losing an umbrella on an omnibus. 
and when this curious event came upon him, he was already more years beyond forty than his friend suspected, or he cared to admit. John Silence, who heard him speak of his experience more than once, said that he sometimes left out certain details and put in others, yet they were all obviously true. The whole scene was unforgettably cinematographed onto his mind. None of the details were imagined or invented, and when he told the story with them all complete, the effect was undeniable. His appealing brown eyes shone, and much of the charming personality, usually so carefully repressed, came forward and revealed itself. His modesty was always there, of course, but in the telling he forgot the present, and allowed himself to appear almost vividly as he lived again in the past of his adventure. He was on the way home when it happened, crossing northern France from some mountain trip or other where he buried himself solitary-wise every summer. He had nothing but an unregistered bag in the rack, and the train was jammed to suffocation, most of the passengers being unredeemed holiday English. He disliked them, not because they were his fellow countrymen, but because they were noisy and obtrusive, obliterating with their big limbs and tweed clothing all the quieter tints of the day that brought him satisfaction, and enabled him to melt into insignificance and forget that he was anybody. These English clashed about him like a brass band making him feel vaguely that he ought to be more self-assertive and obstreperous, and that he did not claim insistently enough all kinds of things that he didn't want, and that were really valueless, such as corner seats, windows up or down, and so forth. So that he felt uncomfortable in the train, and wished the journey were over, and he was back again living with his unmarried sister in Surbiton. And when the train stopped for ten panting minutes at the little station in northern France, and he got out to stretch his legs on the platform, and saw to his dismay a further batch of the British Isles debouching from another train, it suddenly seemed impossible to him to continue the journey. Even his flabby soul revolted, and the idea of staying a night in the little town and going on next day by a slower, emptier train flashed into his mind. The guard was already shouting, En voiture! And the corridor of the compartment was already packed when the thought came to him and for once he acted with decision and rushed to snatch his bag. Finding the corridor and steps impassable, he tapped at the window, for he had a corner seat, and begged the Frenchman who sat opposite to hand his luggage out to him, explaining in his wretched French that he intended to break the journey there, and this elderly Frenchman, he declared, gave him a look, half of warning, half of reproach, that to his dying day he could never forget, handed the bag through the window of the moving train, and at the same time poured into his ears a long sentence, spoken rapidly and low, of which he was able to comprehend only the last few words. A cause du sommeil et a cause des chats. In reply to Dr. Silence, whose singular psychic acuteness at once seized upon this Frenchman as a vital point in the adventure, Vezin admitted that the man had impressed him favorably from the beginning, though without being able to explain why. They had sat facing one another during the four hours of the journey, and though no conversation had passed between them, Vezin was timid about his stuttering French. He confessed that his eyes were being continually drawn to his face, almost he felt to rudeness, and that each, by a dozen nameless little politenesses and attentions, had evinced the desire to be kind. The men liked each other, and their personalities did not clash, or would not have clashed had they chanced to come to terms of acquaintance. The Frenchman, indeed, 
seemed to have exercised a silent protective influence over the insignificant little Englishman, and without words or gestures betrayed that he wished him well and would gladly have been of service to him. And this sentence that he hurled at you after the bag? asked John Silence, smiling that peculiarly sympathetic smile that always melted the prejudices of his patient. Were you able to follow it exactly? It was so quick and low and vehement, explained Vezin, in his small voice, that I missed practically the whole of it. I only caught the few words at the very end, because he spoke them so clearly, and his face was bent down out of the carriage window so near to mine. A cause du sommeil et a cause des chats? repeated Dr. Silence, as though half speaking to himself. That's it exactly, said Vezin, which I take it means something like because of sleep and because of the cats, doesn't it? Certainly that's how I should translate it, the doctor observed shortly, evidently not wishing to interrupt more than necessary. And the rest of the sentence, all the first part I couldn't understand, I mean, was a warning not to do something, not to stop in the town, or at some particular place in town, perhaps. That was the impression it made on me. Then, of course, the train rushed off, and left Vezin standing on the platform alone and rather forlorn. The little town climbed in straggling fashion up a sharp hill, rising out of the plain at the back of the station, and was crowned by the twin towers of the ruined cathedral peeping over the summit. From the station itself it looked uninteresting and modern, but the fact was that the medieval position lay out of sight just beyond the crest, and once he reached the top and entered the old street, he stepped clean out of modern life into a bygone century. The noise and bustle of the crowded train seemed days away. The spirit of this silent hill town, remote from tourists and motor cars, dreaming its own quiet life under the autumn sun, rose up and cast its spell upon him. Long before he recognized this spell, he acted under it. He walked softly, almost on tiptoe, down the winding narrow streets where the gables all but met over his head, and he entered the doorway of the solitary inn with a deprecating and modest demeanor that was in itself an apology for intruding upon the place and disturbing its dream. At first, however, Vezin said, he noticed very little of all this. The attempt at analysis came much later. What struck him, then, was only the delightful contrast of the silence and peace after the dust and noisy rattle of the train. He felt soothed and stroked like a cat. Like a cat, you said? interrupted John Silence, quickly catching him up. Yes, at the very start I felt that. He laughed apologetically. I felt as though the warmth and the stillness and the comfort made me purr. It seemed to be the general mood of the whole place, then. The inn, a rambling ancient house, the atmosphere of the old coaching days still about it, apparently did not welcome him too warmly. He felt he was only tolerated, he said but it was cheap and comfortable, and the delicious cup of afternoon tea he ordered at once made him feel really very pleased with himself for leaving the train in this bold original way. For to him it had seemed bold and original. He felt something of a dog. His room, too, soothed him with its dark paneling and low irregular ceiling, and the long sloping passage that led to it seemed the natural pathway to a real chamber of sleep, a little dim cubbyhole out of the world where noise could not enter. It looked upon the courtyard at the back. It was all very charming, and made him think of himself as dressed in very soft velvet somehow, and the floors seemed padded, the walls provided with cushions. 
the sounds of the street could not penetrate there. It was an atmosphere of absolute rest that surrounded him. On engaging the two-franc room, he had interviewed the only person who seemed to be about that sleepy afternoon, an elderly waiter with dundreary whiskers and a drowsy courtesy, who had ambled lazily toward him across the stone yard. But on coming downstairs again for a little promenade in the town before dinner, he encountered the proprietress herself. She was a large woman whose hands, feet, and features seemed to swim toward him out of a sea of person. They emerged, so to speak. But she had great, dark, vivacious eyes that counteracted the bulk of her body, and betrayed the fact that in reality she was both vigorous and alert. When he first caught sight of her, she was knitting in a low chair against the sunlight of the wall, and something at once made him see her as a great tabby cat, dozing yet awake, heavily sleepy, and yet at the same time prepared for instantaneous action. A great mouser on the watch occurred to him. She took him in with a single comprehensive glance that was polite without being cordial. Her neck, he noticed, was extraordinarily supple in spite of its proportions, for it turned so easily to follow him, and the head it carried bowed so very flexibly. But when she looked at me, you know, said Vezin, with that little apologetic smile in his brown eyes, and that faintly deprecating gesture of the shoulders that was characteristic of him. The odd notion came to me that really she had intended to make quite a different movement, and that with a single bound she could have leaped at me across the width of that stone yard and pounced upon me like some huge cat upon a mouse. He laughed a soft little laugh, and Dr. Silence made a note in his book without interrupting while Vezin proceeded in a tone as though he feared he had already told too much, and more than he could believe. Very soft, yet very active she was for all her size and mass, and I felt she knew what I was doing even after I had passed and was behind her back. She spoke to me, and her voice was smooth and running. She asked if I had my luggage and was comfortable in my room, and then added that dinner was at seven o'clock, as they were very early people in this little country town. Clearly she intended to convey that late hours were not encouraged. Evidently she contrived by voice and manner to give him the impression that here he would be managed, that everything would be arranged and planned for him, and that he had nothing to do but fall into the groove and obey. No decided action or sharp personal effort would be looked for from him. It was the very reverse of the train. He walked quietly out into the street, feeling soothed and peaceful. He realized that he was in a milieu that suited him and stroked him the right way. It was so much easier to be obedient. He began to purr again, and to feel that all the town purred with him. About the streets of that little town he meandered gently, falling deeper and deeper into the spirit of repose that characterized it. With no special aim he wandered up and down, and to and fro. The September sunshine fell slantingly over the roofs, down winding alleyways fringed with tumbling gables and open casements, he caught fairy-like glimpses of the great plain below and of the meadows and the yellow copses lying like a dream map in the haze. The spell of the past held very potently here, he felt. The streets were full of picturesquely garbed men and women, all busy enough going their respective ways, but no one took any notice of him or turned to stare at his obviously English appearance he was even able to forget that with his tourist appearance he was a false note in a charming picture, and he melted more and more into the scene, 
feeling delightfully insignificant and unimportant and unselfconscious. It was like becoming part of a softly colored dream which he did not even realize to be a dream. On the eastern side the hill fell away more sharply, and the plain below ran off rather suddenly into a sea of gathering shadows, in which the little patches of woodland looked like islands, and the stubble fields like deep water. Here he strolled along the old ramparts of ancient fortifications that once had been formidable, but now were only vision-like, with their charming mingling of broken gray walls and wayward vine and ivy. From the broad coping on which he sat for a moment, level with the rounded tops of clipped plane trees, he saw the esplanade far below lying in shadow. Here and there a yellow sunbeam crept in and lay upon the fallen yellow leaves, and from the height he looked down and saw that the townsfolk were walking to and fro in the cool of the evening. He could just hear the sound of their slow footfalls, and the murmur of their voices floated up to him through the gaps between the trees. The figures looked like shadows as he caught glimpses of their quiet movements far below. He sat there for some time pondering, bathed in the waves of murmurs and half-lost echoes that rose to his ears, muffled by the leaves of the plane trees. The whole town, and the little hill out of which it grew as naturally as an ancient wood, seemed to him like a being lying there half asleep on the plain, and crooning to itself as it dozed. And presently, as he sat lazily melting into its dream, a sound of horns and strings and wood instruments rose to his ears, and the town band began to play at the far end of the crowded terrace below, to the accompaniment of a very soft, deep-throated drum. Vezin was very sensitive to music, knew about it intelligently, and had even ventured, unknown to his friends, upon the composition of quiet melodies with low-running chords which he played to himself with the soft pedal when no one was about. And this music, floating up through the trees from an invisible and doubtless very picturesque band of the townspeople, wholly charmed him. He recognized nothing that they played, and it sounded as though they were simply improvising without a conductor. No definitely marked time ran through the pieces, which ended and began oddly after the fashion of wind through an Aeolian harp. It was part of the place and scene, just as the dying sunlight and faintly breathing wind were part of the scene and hour, and the mellow notes of old-fashioned plaintive horns, pierced here and there by the sharper strings, all half-smothered by the continuous booming of the deep drum, touched his soul with a curiously potent spell that was almost too engrossing to be quite pleasant. There was a queer sense of bewitchment in it all. The music seemed to him oddly unartificial. It made him think of trees swept by the wind, of night breezes singing among wires and chimney stacks, or in the rigging of invisible ships, or, and the simile leaped up in his thoughts with a sudden sharpness of suggestion, a chorus of animals, of wild creatures, somewhere in desolate places of the world, crying and singing as animals will to the moon. He could fancy he heard the wailing half-human cries of cats upon the tiles at night, rising and falling with weird intervals of sound, and this music, muffled by distance and the trees, made him think of a queer company of these creatures on some roof far away in the sky, uttering their solemn music to one another and the moon in chorus. It was, he felt at the time, a singular image to occur to him, yet it expressed his sensation pictorially better than anything else. The instruments played with such impossibly odd intervals, and the crescendos and diminuendos 
were so very suggestive of catland on the tiles at night, rising swiftly, dropping without warning to deep notes again, and all in such strange confusion of discords and accords. But at the same time a plaintive sweetness resulted on the whole, and the discords of those half-broken instruments were so singular that they did not distress his musical soul like fiddles out of tune. He listened a long time, wholly surrendering himself as his character was, and then strolled homewards in the dusk as the air grew chilly. There was nothing to alarm, put in Dr. Silence briefly. Absolutely nothing, said Vezin. But you know it was all so fantastical and charming that my imagination was profoundly impressed. Perhaps, too, he continued, gently explanatory, it was this stirring of my imagination that caused other impressions, for as I walked back, the spell of the place began to steal over me in a dozen ways, though all intelligible ways. But there were other things I could not account for in the least, even then. Incidents, you mean? Hardly incidents, I think. A lot of vivid sensations crowded themselves upon my mind, and I could trace them to no causes. It was just after sunset, and the tumbled old buildings traced magical outlines against an opalescent sky of gold and red. The dusk was running down the twisted streets. All round the hill the plain pressed in like a dim sea, its level rising with the darkness. The spell of this kind of scene, you know, can be very moving, and it was so that night. Yet I felt that what came to me had nothing directly to do with the mystery and wonder of the scene. Not merely the subtle transformations of the spirit that come with beauty, put in the doctor, noticing the hesitation. Exactly, Vezin went on, duly encouraged and no longer so fearful of our smiles at his expense. The impressions came from somewhere else. For instance, down the busy main street where men and women were bustling home from work, shopping at stalls and barrows, idly gossiping in groups and all the rest of it, I saw that I aroused no interest and that no one turned to stare at me as a foreigner and a stranger. I was utterly ignored, and my presence among them excited no special interest or attention. And then, quite suddenly, it dawned upon me with conviction that all the time this indifference and inattention was merely feigned. Everybody, as a matter of fact, was watching me closely. Every movement I made was known and observed. Ignoring me was all a pretense, an elaborate pretense. He paused a moment, and looked at us to see if we were smiling, and then continued reassured. It is useless to ask me how I noticed this, because I simply cannot explain it. But the discovery gave me something of a shock. Before I got back to the inn, however, another curious thing rose up strongly in my mind, and forced my recognition of it as true. And this, too, I may as well say at once, was equally inexplicable to me. I mean, I can only give you the fact as fact it was to me. The little man left his chair and stood on the mat before the fire. His diffidence lessened from now onwards, and he lost himself again in the magic of the old adventure. His eyes shone a little already as he talked. Well, he went on, his soft voice rising somewhat with his excitement. I was in a shop when it came to me first, though the idea must have been at work for a long time subconsciously to appear in so complete a form all at once. I was buying socks, I think, he laughed, and struggling with my dreadful French, when it struck me that the woman in the shop did not care two pins whether I bought anything or not. She was indifferent whether she made a sale or did not make a sale, 
She was only pretending to sell. This sounds a very small and fanciful incident to build upon what follows. But really, it was not small. I mean, it was the spark that lit the line of powder and ran along to the big blaze in my mind. For the whole town, I suddenly realized, was something other than I so far saw it. The real activities and interests of the people were elsewhere and otherwise than appeared. Their true lives lay somewhere out of sight behind the scenes. Their busyness was but the outward assemblance that masked their actual purposes. They bought and sold and ate and drank and walked about the streets, yet all the while the main stream of their existence lay somewhere beyond my ken, underground in secret places. In the shops and at the stalls they did not care whether I purchased their articles or not. At the inn they were indifferent to my staying or going. Their life lay remote from my own, springing from hidden mysterious sources, coursing out of sight unknown. It was all a great elaborate pretense, assumed possibly for my benefit, or possibly for purposes of their own. But the main current of their energies ran elsewhere. I almost felt as an unwelcome foreign substance might be expected to feel when it has found its way into the human system, and the whole body organizes itself to eject it or to absorb it. The town was doing this very thing to me. This bizarre notion presented itself forcibly to my mind as I walked home to the inn, and I began busily to wonder wherein the true life of this town could lie, and what were the actual interests and activities of its hidden life. And now that my eyes are partly opened, I noticed other things too that puzzled me. First of which, I think, was the extraordinary silence of the whole place. Positively the town was muffled. Although the streets were paved with cobbles, the people moved about silently, softly, with padded feet like cats. Nothing made noise. All was hushed, subdued, muted. The very voices were quiet, low-pitched like purring. Nothing clamorous, vehement, or emphatic seemed able to live in the drowsy atmosphere of soft dreaming that soothed this little hill-town into its sleep. It was like the woman at the inn, an outward repose screening intense interactivity and purpose. Yet there was no sign of lethargy or sluggishness anywhere about it. The people were active and alert. Only a magical and uncanny softness lay over them all like a spell. Vezin passed his hand across his eyes for a moment, as though the memory had become very vivid. His voice had run off into a whisper, so that we heard the last part with difficulty. He was telling a true thing, obviously, yet something that he both liked and hated telling. I went back to the inn, he continued presently in a louder voice, and dined. I felt a new strange world about me. My old world of reality receded. Here, whether I liked it or no, was something new and incomprehensible. I regretted having left the train so impulsively. An adventure was upon me, and I loathed adventures as foreign to my nature. Moreover, this was the beginning, apparently, of an adventure somewhere deep within me, in a region I could not check or measure, and a feeling of alarm mingled itself with my wonder, alarm for the stability of what I had for forty years recognized as my personality. I went upstairs to bed, my mind teeming with thoughts that were unusual to me, and of rather a haunting description. By way of relief, I kept thinking of that nice, prosaic, noisy train, and all those wholesome, blustering passengers. I almost wished I were with them again, but my dreams took me elsewhere. I dreamed of cats and soft-moving creatures and the silence of life in a dim, muffled world beyond the senses. End of Case 2, Ancient Sorceries 
part one.